This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. <clears throat> Over the years, I've made a deliberate focus to deal with basic issues in in the Christian life and in the church. And um, you know, people get into uh, debating and various things, dispensational theologies, and uh, you know. Uh, end times theologies and all these kinds of things which are and can be informative and encouraging uh, all that kind of stuff I'm not not speaking in opposition to them but generally for the body of Christ there is not a more basic issue for us than that of dealing with life's guidance from the word of God many Pastors and uh, Christian professionals, um, and you might wonder, what do you mean by Christian professionals? But we'd be thinking of of people who, as Christians, are involving themselves in counselling uh, um, people, and, and some of them are giving themselves to the counselling of unbelievers, um, which is an interesting area for people to give themselves to professionally. But many of them are opting for unbiblical methods um, and partly that's because they can't function legally in the community without adopting uh, the methods that the world prescribes. And so, you know, there are many uh, Christian counsellors who, who endorse unbiblical elements and, and unproven elements of psychology in their counselling processes. Now, that is not the same thing as saying that psychology is wrong. Psychology, in its simple forms, is the study of human behaviour. That's what it means. But there are things that are obvious within psychology, and then there are things that are not obvious. And much of the problem with psychology is that it does not come from any foundational ground view as to how to resolve people's uh, battles, emotional battles and various different things. And so uh, many pastors will use unbiblical methods to attempt to grow the church. And this has come out of the church growth movement and and all that kind of stuff where where there's an emphasis on church growth by any means and that somehow church growth is an indication that the blessing of God is on that movement. Now, if you think about that just for a moment, one of the faster-growing religions in the world is, is Islam. Uh, you, you would be foolish to say the blessing of God is on that religion. Uh, Mormonism took off like a storm in the early 1900s and grew rapidly. And, you know, it would be heresy to say that the blessing of God is on that cult. It's a cult. That's what it is. It has wrong teachings about Jesus and about salvation. It needs to be called for what it is. But I can promise you that within that organization, they have employed church growth methods that many within the church today employ within even evangelicalism. Many believers listen to unbiblical ministers to try and receive a word from God and and they'll say things like, oh, I'm just, you know, I I eat the meat and spit out the bones. 
And, uh, you know, we've all had, um, you know, been to a restaurant and had ordered some fish and that piece of fish was some bony old piece of stuff that by the time you got through all the bones, you didn't get much meat. And, uh, you know, it's sometimes it's just not worth it pursuing that kind of, well, you know, I can get something out of this, I'm sure, approach when it could be more dangerous to us by the influx of, of false doctrine and false teaching that comes from that. Um, this even comes down to areas of systematic theology. Systematic theology is, is a wonderful tool for uh, teaching and for use in the church, but systematic theologies hold to systems of instruction. And so most times that systematic theology will have a premise that it is trying to teach. And in order to teach that premise, it will find scriptures to endorse that premise and take those scriptures often out of context or add a context that is not in the biblical author's context. And so they uh, hold to a system of theology and, and they'd rather adhere to that then just simply stick to the instruction of the Word of God and allow God's Word to bring that instruction. And invariably, that system of theology takes them outside of the Scripture to find its support. And, uh, you know, this is often called, uh, you know, the often within the realms of the, theology, people refer to the grammatical historical method. And so the grammatical method goes into the study of Scripture according to the grammar and the context and the instruction that the Scripture gives us and working out and understanding the, the Scripture as it was written in the language it was written and translating that over into the language of today. The historical method, though, brings some deep questions with it because oftentimes the historical method is simply to imply that historically the church has taught this, so therefore it's correct. And that's, that's not a correct assumption because historically the church has taught things that are incorrect. And so it's important for us that we take uh, and we study the historical method toward the scripture going back as far as possible to the original intent or what is called the authorial intent, the author's intent from the text. Now, these are actually all secondary issues, very important issues, but secondary issues for you because principally they are problems easily navigated around in your life. You can easily navigate around those issues in your own life. Right? You don't need uh, uh, a church's position on things to understand theology and to read your Bible and to give yourself to studying it in its context. The problem in this generation that we're in right now is laziness toward Christianity. It's lazy believers by and large that are the problem to themselves. Now, church growth methods have produced people who'd rather listen for truth rather than search for truth. The, the modern era and the, the internet superhighway, as it, you know, first it was called the, um, the internet highway, and 
pretty quickly people started to see that there is just uh, trillions of bits of information available to us. Even trillions is a small number now. And so it's the internet superhighway that at a very simple click and a, and a short string of, uh, of question, you can find out reams of information on any given subject. If you're a home handyman, you can find all kinds of stuff. Want to tile that floor? Go and have a look. You can find all kinds of stuff. Want to fix a plumbing pipe? You can find all kinds of stuff. Want to bake a cake? All kinds of things. Live the low-carb life? Plenty of information out there. It's easy, easy to do. But that does not translate over to the Christian life because at the end of the day, God has given you and I his word and it's his word that we need to invest ourselves into and by doing that, we will gain from that search for truth. Before we get to 1 Peter, John says in his first epistle, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world, gone out into the world. What would John expect of someone to test? You know, the New Testament letters at the writing of John had not been formulated and some of Paul's letters, John makes reference to uh, Paul's writings. Some of them were circulating around through the church, but they had not been canonized as scripture. By that point, they were encouraging the church and, and receiving instruction. But John would say to us at that time, if people were to question him, he would say, test what's being taught against history and against scripture. And so he would go back into the, the, what was being brought out uh, uh, into the church as the teachings of the disciples, uh, the apostles rather, teaching the disciples, the doctrine of the apostles as Acts 2 calls it. And he would encourage people to be teaching these doctrines in the church and, and researching the scripture which would pertain to the Old Testament scriptures in that time. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, but test everything. Hold fast that which is good. No matter who your favorite preacher is, and, and it doesn't matter who it is. You and I have a responsibility to test everything. That is our responsibility. The word being preached across this pulpit, you should test it. And if you find encouragement and truth in it, rejoice in that. That's, that's what we should do. If we find that in this church error is coming across, then we should correct that error as a body. That's our responsibility. Now, this does not mean that we need agreement in the church on every little thing, right? There are things that, that you and I can show liberty towards one another over, that, and these are the non-essential things. And, and part of our, um, uh, the, the issue that we talked about a couple of weeks ago uh, prior to the sermon where we talked about the development of the leadership group 
and uh, formate, uh, formation of church documents and things, we're in, installing into that document what we would call core teachings or essential beliefs that, that would identify true believers. And some of those essential beliefs being a, a belief in the authority of Scripture and the divine inspiration of God's Word, the 66 books as they've come, been handed down to the church, that, that God's hand was behind those books and that the, the truth of Scripture has been handed down through generations to us. The gospel plan of salvation, that there are aspects to the gospel plan that are fundamental to being true and that outside of that it is untrue, that uh, the, the Godhead, the deity of Christ, the deity of the Holy Spirit and the Father, that the, the triune Godhead is an important and fundamental doctrine. This is why when Americans were getting very excited about the potential for a Christian president in uh, Mitt Romney, I think it was at the time, who's a Mormon, practicing Mormon, and but was calling himself a Christian so that he could try and win the Christian vote. He's not a Christian. If he's a Mormon, he is not a Christian. That is, it's that simple. So these are primary areas of theology, and they will divide. They will divide in the church, and they will divide churches from churches or from religious groups, because if you don't believe that Christ Jesus' death on the cross was a payment for mankind's sin, you're believing the wrong... You're believing an error if you don't believe that. If you don't believe that God took on human flesh and came to earth to die in our place, then you are not believing truth. These things are fundamental and they are core to us. So... Let's talk about the gospel for a few moments here and let's read from 1 Peter chapter 1 and we'll begin at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through many temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Well, there are some doctrinal issues being hit on here by Peter, isn't there? You know, the appearing of Christ and, and uh, our uh, salvation that is by faith, etc., uh, etc. Et Whom having not seen, you love. These are powerful statements and we should not just read over them when you're, when you're taking time to read your scripture. It's not important on the quantity that you read. But it's important to read over these things and let them sink in. It's What a great encouragement. You haven't seen Jesus, but you love him. What a fantastic encouragement to you and I. These three remain 
faith, hope and love. It's this faith that we have right now. But the greatest of these is love because when we do see Jesus, our faith will no longer be necessary in that time. And so he's encouraging them. You haven't seen him yet, but you love him. In whom, though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. This is what it's all about. You have believed in Christ Jesus unto salvation. This is a core doctrine that we're talking about here. Salvation by grace through faith. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified or he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Wow, man, there's, there are sermons in that short passage. Verse 12, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven which things the angels desire to look into. In other words, he's saying that the prophets came before and shared a message of the Messiah and they weren't really preaching to their generation, they're preaching to you of this hope to come. Verse 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. This is an important instruction in this passage that we would take a hold of the realms of thinking in our minds and not let our minds just run with every thought or summarized as as a friend of ours, Shane Cook has that t-shirt which says, don't believe everything you think, you know, uh, which is which is a great t-shirt and it's a great motto for your life. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of lifestyle or conversation if you're in the King James. Verse 16, because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Go through this life in the fear and awe of God. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, he's alluding to idolatrous offerings, and he's saying to them, you know that you haven't been redeemed through such offerings uh, and, and idolatrous practices from your vain lifestyle received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. What a a great contrast. He's saying that gold and silver is corruptible and you haven't been redeemed by that, but you've been redeemed with that which is incorruptible, the precious blood of Christ. This is the incorruptible seed of the gospel message. Verse 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your hope 
uh, your faith and hope might be in God, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not out of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Now, Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for these magnificent words that are penned through the Apostle Peter and have been brought down through uh, to us, preserved through time and history, Lord God. We praise you for this. We thank you, Lord God, and we ask you that these words, Lord, would stir our hearts and would lead us to greater depth of love and appreciation of you and a greater walk in love for our brethren, which you in this passage have shown to be so important. We praise you and we thank you. Amen. Amen. Well, just think about this thought firstly, and that is that corruption is a result of sin. The the corruption in the world, the decay of the world, the corruption that we face today is a result of man's sin. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And all that is corruptible in this life has been corrupted by the effects of sin down through history. This is this is the effect of the the original sin and the ongoing effect in our lives. You and I would know that many times in life we've even made sinful choices of our own and that in itself has led to a corruption in our own hearts, in our own lives, uh, through the choices that we make. Someone else may make a choice that leads to damage and injury of our lives, etc., etc. Sin is a corrupting force and a corrupting influence in the world in which we live in today. And this was God's promise to men. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And God, unlike us, keeps his promises. Man has died as a result of sin. We cannot escape that. But it is a comfort to us to be reminded of the hope to come. What an encouragement, as Chris read out and and spoke to us about hope that we have. And biblical hope is not just this hanging on by the skin of our teeth, you know. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and on says, Behold, I speak a mystery to you. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. Not all of us are going to die in this lifetime. But you say, but wait, the scripture says it is appointed unto man once to die. Everyone's going to die. Once to die. You can die in your sin or you can die to your sin. Die and surrender your life to Christ Jesus. The real death that will be the impacting death will be this one of eternal suffering. But when we... Generally, talk about death, all men generally will die, a physical death. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling 
of the eye at the last trumpet. For a trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed. For this corruptible, he's talking here of the human body, must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. But when this corruptible shall put on incorruptible and when this mortal shall put on immortality, then will take place the word that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in this world we face corruption. In eternity, no longer. Now, so that leads us to think about incorruption. Corruption has been caused through man's sin. Anything incorruptible stems from God. It stems, anything incorruptible is heavenly. 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and uh, that fades not away. That's, that is the idea of incorruptible, that it cannot be diminished who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. If you are born again, there is an element to you that is presently incorruptible. But it's not your body. And every one of us who's getting older is realizing that, you know. The the bodies are falling apart, aches and pains where we never dreamed of when we were young and we were invincible. It's taken us some time to learn we're not invincible. Because this body is corruptible, but this corruptible shall put on incorruption. Everything incorruptible is from God. And you have an incorruptible inheritance. There's an ancient saying, it's actually an ancient Roman saying, that where there's life, there's hope. Um, That saying is intended to encourage those who are hanging on, you know. So next time you go and visit someone next to their bed and they're, they're dying in hospital... It's okay, where there's life, there's hope, you know. It doesn't seem to come across very encouraging to me, but anyway, you know, I'm not of that kind of thinking. I so often would just like to leave this world. And, uh, you know, I'd be saying, you know, leave me alone, let me die. So, uh, but that's not what Peter's doing. He's, He's not saying that, where the, you know, you're just clinging on, you're just hanging on, there's still hope. He's not saying that. He's, he's saying that, in fact, that doesn't determine hope. He's saying faith does. There are many who live daily without any hope and they're trying to drum up and sort of drag in some hope into their lives from any angle. But life does not determine hope. And if you're a believer, you're not one of those people who just or should not be one of those people who are just clinging to find some hope for life. Ephesians 2.12 says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see, that's where hopelessness is. Life doesn't determine hope. Christ does. 
And it's interesting that Paul, when he writes in Ephesians, he says that when you were without Christ, you were, you were without hope. His, his statement is that you're, not, you're no longer that person. You are not without hope now. These things have changed. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 3 says, Remember without ceasing your work of faith and labour of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. Actually, in the sight of God and our Father, which is interesting. Our inheritance is incorruptible. The corrupt influences of this world are going to be kept from heaven. Hallelujah. Heaven cannot be spoiled because we will be transformed before we step foot in that place. We will not be taking the corruption that hangs around in our lives with us. Hallelujah. Our inheritance is not only incorruptible, it's also, the scripture says, it's undefiled. It can't be stained. It can't be cheapened. Every saint is washed in the blood of Christ. They have been purified and are being sanctified and will finally be transformed into the image of Christ at that time. Our inheritance is eternal. So it's incorruptible, it is undefiled, and it is eternal. These are awesome words. And if you are going to reverse the impacts of lazy Christianity, study these words out. Study them out and let them bring encouragement to your spirit. It's eternal. The inheritance you have is eternal. You know, these days parents hope that there's not a... a Uh, another global financial crash before they die so that they can leave their children something that still has value, you know, like happened in the Great Depression when houses were, uh, the price of houses plummeted and uh, the Depression hit and then again in the global financial crisis that, that the prices of and the value of things dropped because uh, of those financial crises that hit the world and, you know, people who... Uh, hope that they don't die and leave nothing to their children. Our inheritance that will never happen to because it is eternal and it's not in something material. It is in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. So the value of our inheritance is of eternal value. Hallelujah. So your Christian hope is not about clinging on by the skin of your teeth, you know? You know, like, who was it, um, the little train? I I think I can, I think I can, you know. Which one was that? The little red caboose, wasn't it? Or something, you know. I think I can, I think I can, you know. That's not the Christian life. Oh, I, I hope so. I hope I can. Your hope and my hope is Jesus. And there is nothing more secure for you and I to hope in. He's already gained the the victory. What was his cry on the cross as, as he yielded up his life? What does that mean? Paid in full. It is finished. To talistai is the, the Greek trans, translation of it. Paid in full. Not part paid. Down payment paid, paid in full. In fact, earlier than that, in in John chapter 20, before Jesus had died and and resurrected, 
he breathed on the disciples and the scripture says that he gave them a deposit of the Holy Spirit, like a down payment of what was to come because the fullness of the Holy Spirit in their lives was to occur later in Acts chapter 2 when they were gathered in the upper room and waiting for the Lord to, to bring guidance and direction upon them. They weren't in there having a power prayer meeting as such, you know, and, and so they were waiting on God for his direction. And he came and he filled them with his power. The Christian hope is a confident expectation that God, what God has said he will do because it's not built on, uh, on man's words. It is built on the promise of God. So we have an incorruptible inheritance because of an incorruptible seed. This is where it all begins for each believer. In our text, we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, Verse 22, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, so that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And then he finishes off down in verse 25 and at the close of this, the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. You can see very clearly that Peter is connecting these thoughts, the word, the gospel, the incorruptible seed. Jesus, when he teaches the parables of the kingdom and he talks about the growth of the church age to come and he clearly says there that the seed is the word of God. Peter here is linking this idea of the seed of the word of God and the gospel message of them both being an incorruptible seed. That's the lesson that Jesus had taught them. Behold, a soul went out to sow. And in Mark 4 verse 13, And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? How then shall you know all the parables? The sower sows the word. He's not talking about, you know, these heresies. You know, we're going to pass the plate around and sow some seed money in the plate. Put some seed money in because, you know, if you give, the Lord will multiply it unto you. And so it's seed money. And, you know, the effect of that, not only is that, a false teaching, but the effect of that is to appeal to the very base nature of people. So preachers teaching that kind of word of faith rubbish are appealing to people's greed in giving. That if I give, the Lord will multiply it to me some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Maybe we should do that with our offerings, Chris. No, 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 no. And so Jesus says, the seed that needs to be sown, and Peter is saying the seed that must be sown and the one that has led to the salvation of of these people he's writing to is this gospel seed. That is the incorruptible seed. That's the seed that is taken all over the world by missionaries and, and evangelists and onto the street and into people's homes by which people are saved through the simple message of the gospel. 
But the ongoing incorruptible seed is, is that you and I keep investing ourselves into the reading of God's word so that the, the word of God is sustaining us, the incorruptible word of God. At the foundation of a word-guided church is believers who are born again and have been born again because of the incorruptible seed of God's word. That's, that's where the life of every church is at, is that people are being saved through the preaching of the gospel. There's a war on today and it's a war against the gospel. You know, people are perverting the gospel and, and typically there are two schools of attack or two, two fronts of attack against the gospel. There's the, the liberal theologies and there's the legalistic theologies and you know the liberal theologies are people like, um, generally speaking, like Tony Campolo who, who's into uh, teachings, um, what are they called, the, the social, social justice gospel where, where as believers we go out and do good works and, and in doing of those good works we're justified and it's a mashup of James which Jad was talking about last night and uh, Rick Warren who, who writes things, he writes a lot of stuff, he has huge influence in the church, he wrote once, you see it takes more than belief, it takes more than faith to really please God, it takes faith that results in loving others, well that's true, that's true. You know, but what Ephesians 2 is talking about is actually faith that results in loving others. The loving of others is the consequence of true faith. And that the outworking of true faith in Jesus is that you and I end up loving other people. Because we can't help it. The life of God is at work in us. And, you know, Rick Warren says some great things. With Religion without love doesn't matter. It's not enough to say I believe or even that I know my purpose. What matters is how I love God and how I love other people. That's true. But it's in this mashup that puts the activities and the actions that people do ahead of the faith that they have. Where we should be seeing them as Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's the preeminent theology for good works that the good works flow out of our life in Christ Jesus. To the undiscerning, though, things like what Warren says and, and Campolo, the things they say and do, it appeals to the religious heart because to the undiscerning, it gives them a sense of value that in what they're doing, somehow they're justified before God. And this becomes very dangerous because that is corruptible. The Christian really must hold on to these theologies. And, but we need not be um, dogmatic in the sense that we're just trying to browbeat other people down. We just need to live them, live these theologies and let, the, let our testimony be salt and light in the world around us. You know, salt and light affects Christians who are also caught up in dark teachings. It affects them as well. And so rather than uh, uh, trying to persuade them, live that persuasion that we already have. And that persuasion is going to, it in itself is going to be a separating line with people. 
wrong theologies in this area, what they do is they put the cart before the horse and they teach people that, and it's always very subtle, they teach people that your good works and your faith will save you or your good works and your faith are going to justify you. After all, you know, Jesus said, love God and love your neighbour. Amen? Well, I'll tell you why we should be fussy about the gospel. And it's a really, really simple reason. Uh, there's probably two really simple reasons. One is it honours God to be fussy about the, the gospel. Right? The second reason, just have a look around the room for a sec. Just go and turn around, turn around, have a look. You're the reason why we should be fussy about the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So we should be fussy about it because it saves people. So if it is errantly taught, its salvific power is gone. If you're teaching people faith plus works equals salvation, you're robbing away from the power of faith to save a person. This is is vital. Romans 1, Paul says, So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Paul will later on say, How shall they hear unless somebody preaches? How are they going to believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless someone preaches? If somebody is going out and they're preaching error, there's still the same problem. How will they hear unless someone preaches? The, the assumption of Paul's statement there is that they preach truth. And that's why we need to be fussy about the gospel. It's because of you. Jesus, his whole message, his life, his death, his resurrection, the author of Hebrews would say, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And I believe it's talking about what was set before him was the birth of the church and the salvation of souls. Who for that joy that was set before him endured the cross. It is only deserving that you and I should preach the gospel with accuracy. And that's why the gospel is the incorruptible seed of the word of God. It saves people. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves... It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Going on from there in Ephesians 2, it says, Wherefore remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in in the flesh made by hands, that at that time... You were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. It's vital that we preach the incorruptible seed of God's truth. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I really encourage you to read through those kinds of texts and just study them out. Take time to sit and ponder them. Allow God to teach you through them. Take time to read them and examine your own hearts. As Second Corinthians says, examine yourselves 
to see whether you're in the faith. And that's examining yourselves against the measure of God's word. It's not examining yourselves against a, a church membership structure or, or a, a creed or any such thing. But to measure ourselves against the measure of God's word. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you. We love you, Lord God, because you first loved us and gave your only begotten Son for us. We thank you that your Son was sent into the world to save sinners, and as Paul says, of whom I am chief. Help us, Lord, to recognize and remember the amazing debt of sin we had incurred against you, and yet you have reconciled that debt of sin against the payment made in the blood of your Son. What a debt we owe you, and what a debt we cannot pay. Help us, Lord, to live in service for you, that our lives would glorify you greatly, day in and day out, and that you would be greatly magnified in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.